Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we'd love to potentially have you on the programme alongside us. Um, I'm very pleased to say that joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Pamela Hamilton. Pam is a teamwork expert who has over 20 years of experience working with global and local businesses, teams, communities and people to help them work better together. Originally from a psychology background and possessing a passion for collective intelligence, Pam's ambition is to help empower others, develop their capabilities and drive positive change. Uh, Pam, of course, is also the author of Supercharged Teams, 30 Tools of Great Teamwork and the workshop book, How to Design and Lead Successful Workshops. Um, These share many of Pam's teamwork tips with Supercharged Teams offering 30 different ways that business leaders can enhance themselves, their people and the way that their team works. So without further ado, let's welcome Pam onto the programme. Good morning, Pam. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Uh, very good, thanks. Uh, certainly is a lovely day for uh, the podcast as well, isn't it? The weather is nice outside, so the morale is high, it's let's say. It's really good, and thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure, Pam, um, and like I say, lovely day for it as well. Um, now, something I wanted to talk about on the podcast today is something that we've maybe not covered in depth as much before, and that's this little thing called workplace banter. It's a phrase that we do hear an awful lot, but sometimes it has the potential to go overboard, doesn't it, and become somewhat uncomfortable for that poor soul on the receiving end of it. And beyond that, it can actually get to the point where it's more akin to just downright abuse, misogyny and sexism. Spotting this when it happens or at least has the potential to happen can be a real challenge for business leaders to sort of really see that, nip that in the bud straight away. But There are seven primary signs of a toxic workplace that you identified and shared with the Daily Mail that those at the top can look out for. So first and foremost, Pam, what are some of those signs that we should really be on our guard for? Thank you, Scott. This is a very important area. When I was interviewing lots of different experts for the book, the topic of conflict in teams came up again and again. And this idea of being in a toxic team can be so destructive, not just for the team's efficiency and their performance, uh, and so it's bad for business, but also for people's mental health and emotional well-being. I interviewed a conflict expert on what was uh, what were some of the reasons why we're suffering so much conflict at work. And one of the things she said was that because we're emailing each other so much more or, or messaging each other rather than speaking, conflicts become worse and worse a lot more quickly. So some of those warning signs that you're perhaps in a toxic team or that you've got conflict that's really standing in the way of how you work well together is that thing that you were talking about earlier, which is banter. You know, the problem is uh, there's a very fine line between banter and bullying. Mm. And it's really in the eye of the beholder. So we might find something is funny and it might be offending somebody else. I don't know about you, but as I grow older and more uh, experienced in my career, I find that many adults are more and more sensitive and more and more worried about their performance and trying their best. And so perhaps those things that start off as small jokes, which, uh, you know, we originally had a little bit of a laugh about, they can build up and make people feel bad. And one of the most important things to think about is that we 
perhaps consider our teams like our families. So we think, oh, you know, um, there's a whole lot of people that we know at work and we get to know each other well and, you know, don't worry about him, he's always like that or don't worry, she's always grumpy and we start to accept each other's sort of habits and behaviors for good and for bad. And actually, it's really difficult because our teams aren't families. Our teams are supposed to be like a high-performing sports team. And so when we're starting to excuse each other's behaviors and when that that banter turns into bullying, it can really impact on the performance of the team. Mm, Absolutely. And um, when it comes to sort of the impact that some of these kind of ailments have, if we call them that, um, it can bring down performance and ultimately it can have a detrimental impact on the business. So it is something that ultimately can pan out in quite a serious way, can't it? Absolutely. And again, this is about impacting on people's energy and motivation, not just on their business performance. So if you've literally got a, a pool of talent whose energy and time is being somehow wasted or reduced because of the uh, negative toxic behaviors or banter or bullying at work, it's really bad for your commercial success, not just for people's health. And what happens is uh, we start to sort of, it's a little bit like that analogy of a frog in boiling water. You know, it might start off light and it might get worse and worse over time. And we're creatures of habit. You know, human beings want to and love that familiarity with each other. And breaking those habits is really, really tough. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book was there's a lot of books out there uh, around leadership and how to be a great leader, how to be a great manager. But I didn't see any books around how to have an impact as a team member on the rest of the team. So my main message is you don't have to be the leader of the team to intervene if something's negative or bad. Any individual in any team, no matter how junior or how new or how old, could be the person who says, look, I'd like things to improve, please. Yeah, exactly. I think it's important with an issue like this that we have to recognise it's not all on the leader's head to sort of speak out about it and really drive for that improvement, as you say. And when these issues do become obvious, what can leaders or anyone within a business actually go ahead and do to try and go about resolving something like that? Well, I'm under no illusion, this is very difficult, Scott. So if you are in, if you find yourself in a toxic team or if that, if you've been in a team that has become toxic or has developed lots of conflict over time, it's very hard to change it. However, I really believe that it's the responsibility of each individual in the team to speak up. Now, there are very specific ways of speaking up. And, and first of all, taking that step is hard, but you are not just taking it on behalf of yourself. You're taking it on behalf of the rest of the team. So, you know, you've got a purpose that's beyond yourself. If you speak up, you'll, I'm sure, make sure that other people join you because you'll be naming something that other people have been thinking about. So the first thing to do is to keep your language in a statement about yourself and your feelings rather than directed at other people. So you can say something like, I feel uncomfortable with the way that we are, that the way our banter has developed, or I feel like we're in a situation where everyone's quite negative, or I'm feeling unhappy about how we behave together at work. I'd like to ask whether we can change that. So you're not accusing somebody else of being wrong. You're not accusing somebody else's behavior of being wrong. You're saying how you feel. And of course, that allows people to empathize with perhaps the feeling that, that, that is being created by quite an emotional situation. 
And it's really difficult sometimes to actually go and take that first step, isn't it? Because I suppose one of the signs of a toxic workplace as well is there's almost a culture of fear around speaking out, isn't there? Because nobody really wants to sort of go and take the risk of going to sort of human resources or going to their business leaders saying there's an issue and somebody cottoning on to that and then obviously giving them a little bit of a rollicking for it. Yes, it's, it's uh, particularly difficult uh, if you've entered that habit and that pattern has been going for some time. I mean, uh, Scott, I was bullied at work um, and I, it was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Mm. It was an incredibly traumatic situation for me. And in, in the end, it led to me being um, able to, I, I left a particular job and I started my own company and it, it led to positive things, but it still you know, affects me today in terms of uh, what happened. So I do understand what it's like where people are working in a situation which is really difficult. However, when I interviewed a, a whole lot of different experts about this for the for supercharged teams, someone said to me that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Now, that's really hard to hear, especially when you're in a difficult situation, which is not you know your fault mm. if you're being bullied by somebody else. But again and again, people were saying that you share, if, if you are in a situation which is difficult, you do share some responsibility in that. And I think partly because we're trying to be professional, partly because we're trying to be polite, it isn't easy to speak up. And especially at first when something small happens and you sort of think, oh, I'll let that go. But what I've learned and what I've begun to apply myself and what all of the experts say is that you need to speak up and you need to speak early. Again, not only will you be speaking up on behalf of other people, but you'll also be helping that person who might be um, affecting other people and not realizing it. You might be helping them to be more aware of their own behavior and the impact of, of their behavior on other people. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think just from a leadership point of view, just listening to some of the things that you've said there, I think what is so important for directors and for HR is to have sort of an open door policy within business, isn't it? So that people know that they can go in and approach them with concerns like this as and when they do arise. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, we should definitely encourage an open door policy for HR and for leadership. I think I would add to that, though, and say the company's overall culture needs to promote mm. immediate, fast communication and feedback. And so, you know, from the top down, but also from the bottom up, making sure that people know that they're allowed to speak up quickly and in the moment if something feels off. And this is really important now as we all work a lot more remotely. Uh, and again, I, 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 the conflict mediator that I interviewed, her name was Irene Grindel, and she's an incredible conflict mediator who gets brought into all sorts of businesses in order to solve problems with teams that have become incredibly difficult or toxic. And she said to me that, you know, we've, we've got to have a culture where it's okay to say, oh, uh, what did you mean by that? Or, oh, are you, are you feeling okay today? The email tone felt a bit wrong. You know, mm. something that encourages people to speak up immediately to each other not resort to HR. It, you know, once you're going to HR, sometimes it's gone a little bit too far. And I'm not saying don't go to HR because obviously um, leadership in HR will also be able to give you support. Mm. I just mean that we need to encourage people to be able to speak up in the moment. And if you can say it in that I fashion, you know, oh, I, I noticed that, that your tone felt a little bit off. Are you, are you okay today? You know, immediately feeding back to that person in the moment. 
it shows that awareness, doesn't it? And I think it's incredibly important that leaders do sort of adjust their approach to sort of cater for the new sort of hybrid working or remote working world because it is so much more difficult at times, isn't it, to pick up on the social cues that something's not quite right over virtual means as opposed to when you're sort of in an office space together and you can really sort of see someone's demeanour and sort of pick up a lot easier that something's maybe not quite right there. Absolutely. I mean, you've absolutely, uh, this is, you've named one of the biggest challenges I think that we face right now at work, which is because we're also used to doing things a lot faster, you know, we're under a lot more pressure. Uh, remote working means that our working is a lot more transactional. Many people over the last 18 months, because of the crisis, have been in back to back meetings five days a week with no downtime. And, and that time that we used to spend like waiting outside a, a meeting room or grabbing a coffee together or walking to the train station together, those moments were investment in the trust and the relationships that we built. Rather like, if, if I go back to the analogy of the sports team, that, those were rather like the training for the game. And then when you're in the meeting, you're in the game. And um, we've lost some of those chances to build that trust and relationship with each other, which did give us the color and the understanding of each other's lives, which then made us able to communicate better. And one of the most difficult things that we're seeing now is that as teams come back to work, we've got to be careful to reset, not to take the behaviors, pre-COVID behaviors and the behaviors of the last 18 months back into the office as we return to whatever it is, the, the new better normal, whether we're still remote working, whether we're hybrid working or whether we're back at the office, because we've increased that pace to such a degree that we've left no time for conversations, building trust, and that shared development that younger and newer team members used to get. Yeah, certainly is food for thought for those at the top of the business, isn't it? And um, I think next, uh, Pam, I think we should also touch a little bit more on supercharged teams as well. Um, we talked a little bit about it already. It is one of your works and it highlights 30 different ways that business leaders can enhance themselves, their people, and the way that their team works. Um, when there is sort of unacceptable behavior and there are unacceptable situations going on, we've talked a bit about how you can enhance relations within a team, but without sort of giving too much away for those who've not read the book, um, what are some of the other key things in there that directors, CEOs can heed to really supercharge productivity and teamwork sort of outside combating that toxicity, would you say? So, Scott, the, the the book is full of various tools which are intended to be used by specific teams. And so one of the messages I'd like to send to leaders and CEOs is we need to give people the tools to reset their teams and agree their rules of engagement team by team. So, yes, you can have a wonderful working culture where you make bullying and banter unacceptable, where you make it easier for people to be able to speak up to each other. But also, this is not just about a company-wide policy. So whether you're agreeing how to work remotely or in a hybrid fashion coming you know, in the next six months, or whether you are creating a new team and choosing your new team members, it's about being very deliberate and conscious about what and how you're doing that. So you know, one of the things that has become really uh, very clear to me, and I didn't even really think about it before uh, before I was writing the book was you know we think that we're if we're in the same department we're in the in in a team together or if we're in the same office we're in a team together or, or we work for the same company or my my favorite one is if we're in the same meeting together every week we think that we think we're in a team but those none of those are teams 
A team is a group of people who choose to work together to achieve a specific goal in a specific timeline. So attending the same meeting week by week isn't being a team. And so you know, my argument is that we should reset to make sure that we're truly using each other's time well, that we're looking for how we can truly collaborate with each other. And that requires a deliberate and conscious mindset. So rather than this is how we've always done things, it's about thinking, right, how are we going to reset? Because right now, in the next six months, we've got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, don't we, to reset how we work together. Mm. We certainly do, yeah. And um, throughout your career, of course, Pam, you've worked in so many teams that have been successful, become successful and helped instigate positive change. Um, but when it comes to sort of maybe your own leadership approach, um, how would you actually sort of describe that just out of interest? Thanks, Scott. So, yeah, we, we well, my company, uh, we've always worked remotely, actually. So my company is about 30 people. We work remotely because that's how I find the best talent. So we're consultants who do capability projects and training projects and innovation for big companies like Unilever and Diageo and, and GSK. So our my leadership approach has always been um, one of, I guess, autonomous support. So because we all work remotely, we have some really specific behaviors, which we've always done, which are things like uh, fast feedback. So in the moment, if something feels off, say it and let's all check in with each other. The other thing that we've always done is we've always had our video cameras on whenever we met, you know, even for the last five years, because Mm. we need to be able to pick up on as many cues as possible. So that's one of the reasons why people join us is that we've got some very, very clear behaviors that we've set out. Within those clear behaviors and expectations for each other, we then allow complete transparency and autonomy. So we don't check up on people. We let them work whenever they want, uh, at what time of day they want to, because we know that we can trust them. And and I suppose there's that saying that says, you know, if if you can't trust your people 100% to work for you remotely, then, you know, why have you hired them in the first place? So obviously I'm in a privileged position to have a small team that I can hire on that basis. When you're talking to your uh, CEOs and leaders who've got big teams who perhaps started working in one way and now having to think about how they work in another way, I still believe that fast feedback and that transparent autonomy is the way to lead a remote team. But the problem with hybrid and remote is that there's lots of uncertainty or at least there's flexibility, which is in some ways very good for the talent that you want to retain. But flexibility can lead to blurred boundaries. And so you need to be very careful to set very clear boundaries Mm. on rules of engagement and how you'd like to behave together. I think that's so, so crucial, isn't it? Because we talk so much now about sort of mental health and well-being as a result of the pandemic. It was already a very much a hot topic, but it's become even more sort of thrust into the limelight of the national sphere, hasn't it? Because um, of the COVID crisis. And it is important within leadership to recognise that as good as that flexible working is, you know, you can't demand too much from people, can you? You still need to have that downtime. And there is always that risk, as you say, that the sort of line between work life and home life is blurred by flexible working. And like I say, you need to put mechanisms, you need to put strategies in place to make sure that that doesn't happen and sort of come to life in a detrimental way. It's absolutely true. One of the most important and sort of popular chapters is chapter three in the book uh, of Supercharged Teams, which is all about taking back control of time. Because as you point out, you know, we perhaps have uh, saved that time from commuting, but given it back to just work and more Mm -hmm. meetings. And whether or not we're going back into the office, research has shown even before COVID that in an average week, 
most office workers spend at least 54% of their time on meetings and emails before they even get down to their job. So, you know, you're only starting your job technically on a Wednesday. And one of the main things you need to do is take back control back from bad meetings that either are not clearly run or have no agenda or, or you're being invited to, but you don't need to be there and take back your time from spending all your time on checking emails. So taking back control of time in order to give it to developing relationships or building trust with each other or developing younger and more junior team members. You know, we need to make sure that we deliberately reset how we use our time. One of my clients have started doing, I'm sure you've heard about zero-based budgeting mm. uh, as a result of supercharged teams. One of my clients has started doing zero-based calendars. So essentially deleting everything that's in the calendar that's a long-standing meeting that everybody always used to do once a month or once a week and starting again and saying, what do we really need to do? How do we need to spend time together? Rather than just the habitual things that we always did, you know, we always meet on a Monday morning for two hours to do a team update. Is that a good use of people's time? Another client of mine have taken that Monday morning meeting and instead of everyone doing an update on what they're working on, they've turned it into a, how can I help you meeting? So, Mm. This is a meeting where people ask for help from the rest of the team. So just, you know, deliberately turning on its head any time that we're spending together to make sure that we're maximizing building relationships. Absolutely. And that's going to be so, so important over the next 12 months as we sort of continue to hopefully try and move into the post-pandemic world and sort of get on top of this virus because social restrictions are gone in England for the time being, but we don't know the trajectory in which the pandemic is going to go on. And reflecting on some of the sort of severe inequalities and real issues that the pandemic has really thrust up as well. Um, We're asking questions, of course, about sort of gender diversity aren't we um sort of race relations female representation on sort of executive boards that sort of thing so what are some of your kind of priorities going to be over the next 12 months would you say pam as we sort of move out of social restrictions decisively hopefully across the uk and really embrace the future yes it has thrown up a lot of inequalities we all know that women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic they've Mm -hmm. either lost jobs or they've been Uh, suffering because they're the ones who've had to take on uh, all of the responsibilities at home when everybody is working from home with young children. I think some of the things, in addition to uh, equality around gender, some of the things that we really focus on is this four-generation workplace that we're now in. You know, for the first time, we've got four generations at work, and that brings its own uh, exclusivity issues and accessibility issues. And we've got to be careful not to, for example, exclude older people from the workplace who are not so comfortable with technology. We've also got to be super careful to give younger people or or less experienced people or new people in the team the opportunities to learn from uh, other people, the opportunities to overhear conversations and to be developed. Because it's been my experience and working, you know, for the last 20 years in this field that we're giving a lot less individual development time to our people. So yes, there might be tons of uh, courses that you can go on online, but that time where uh, we're sitting in the same meeting and overhearing how our leaders are talking or sitting in an office and overhearing how people are behaving with each other or talking to their customers, that's learning by osmosis that we might potentially be losing. So we need to be very careful about including people. But actually, one of the most surprising things that we've uh, found, Scott, is We run a lot of online workshops. We always did, and and obviously we've done a lot uh, in the last 18 months. And we are now saying quite controversially that we believe online workshops are 
far more successful and get far greater outputs and outcomes than in-person workshops. And the reason for that is we found that we've been able to include far more neurodiverse people. So previously, you know, we would, and I'm the author of the workshop book, so I've run workshops for many years, but you'd, you'd often get a group of very um, high-functioning, extroverted, confident people in a room together for eight hours. Those people would probably be in a central, perhaps London venue where they could afford to be in London for that day, even if, if it was a global team. And now what we're able to do is we're able to create a journey because we don't take people on an eight hours um, session in one. We create that eight hours over the course of, say, a week. And those people who are not extroverted or those people who can't afford to be in London or those people who just don't get their energy from being you know, in front of everybody for eight hours are able to participate and we're getting far better commercial results as, uh, after that. So we've learned a lot about neurodiversity and I do feel that remote and hybrid working and flexible working will enable our teams to be more diverse, which has been proven to be successful for any kind of collective intelligence and also more neurodiverse, where we can appeal to the strengths of neurodiverse people and include them far better in our teams. Plenty to think about for business leaders all over the place and um, with uh, that in mind, uh, Pam, for sure. And I think it's a fantastic mission that you are on trying to raise awareness of these issues and really go on that campaign for sort of better teams, supercharged teams and enhancing productivity, making everybody sort of content in the work that they're doing. And I think as we start to really understand exactly what sort of shape we're taking in the workplace over the course of the next sort of six to 12 months, I'd actually relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the show with us just to see how things are starting to change because it's a really important issue this and I think it should get the, uh, the attention it deserves. Thank you, Scott. Yes, I'd love to. I mean, as, I, as I've said, this is our chance to reset how we work for the better. This is our chance to really decide what work looks like, not pre-COVID, not during COVID, but now going forward, creating a better normal. The opportunity is right here for all of us to take. I mean, the only time we'll change anything is when everything around us is changing. So I really believe this is a very positive stage in the evolution of work. And I'd love to talk about it in six months' time and uh, share some more stories about how we're seeing our big clients adapting in a positive way. Absolutely right. And I'd be really relishing the opportunity as well to sort of catch up on how that's been taken on board too. Um, it's a shame we're just about out of time on the show today, Pam, because I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion that we've had and I could literally talk about this all day. Um, but in the meantime, um, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but I'm very confident the better days are certainly ahead of us. Thank you, Scott. Yes, I agree with you. It's still very difficult times. And uh, let's keep on having that empathy with each other and working together to make a better normal coming out of the pandemic. Thank you. Absolutely. That empathy and that positivity is infectious. Thank you so much, Pam. It was a pleasure to welcome teamwork expert Pamela Hamilton onto today's Leaders' Council podcast episode. And I do hope that all of you thoroughly enjoyed a most compelling interview. Um, until next time, I'm going to be now handing the reins over to our chairman and the former education secretary, Lord Blunkett, who's going to be sharing his take on the events of the last 16 months with the COVID-19 situation, as well as his hopes for this period of economic recovery we're hopefully venturing into now. Uh, that will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. 
which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber 
attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole 
is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they, you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think they'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh cut, uh, shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, Uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.